Welcome to the Opera Log, the opera preview of Tri-Cities Opera's production of the Gilbert and Sullivan favorite HMS Pinafore. Stage director Nicholas Worman will explain the plot of the operetta, assisted by members of the cast conducted by Joshua Horsch with pianist John Cockrell. Jake Stamatis is Sir Joseph Porter, Kevin Bryant is Rafe Rackstraw, Aaron Stepanik is Captain Corcoran, Gina Moscato is Josephine, Tizia Quartang is Buttercup, John Shellhart is Dick Deadeye, and Eric Toft is the bosun. Now here is artistic director Susan Ashbaker. Welcome. I'm Susan Ashbaker, the artistic director for Tri-Cities Opera and host for tonight's preview of HMS Pinafore. I'd like to talk a little bit about satire. According to Merriam-Webster, it's a literary work holding up human vices and follies to ridicule or scorn. Wit, irony, or sarcasm used to expose and discredit vice or folly. According to Wikipedia, which we all know is certain, a genre of literature, graphic or performing arts in which vices, follies, abuses, and shortcomings are held up to ridicule, ideally with the intent of shaming individuals, corporations, governments, or society itself into improvement. And across the pond, the Oxford Dictionary says, it's the use of humor, irony, exaggeration, or ridicule to expose and criticize people's vices, stupidity, particularly in the context of contemporary politics or other topical issues. So, satirical movies. How many of you saw Airplane in 1980? I love the line where they say, surely you can't be serious. And he says, I'm serious and don't call me Shirley. And then there was Serial Mom by John Waters, who was a famous cult movie producer and director. Wall-E in 2006, does anybody remember that? Stanley Kubrick gave us Dr. Strangelove in 1964. 2018 was Crazy Rich Asians. And back in the 1936 and 1940, Charlie Chaplin brought us Modern Times and The Great Dictator. If you go online, you're gonna find over 500 satirical movies. Well, what about books? Long ago, Voltaire wrote a satirical book called Candide, Slaughterhouse-Five, Gulliver's Travels. George Orwell wrote 1984 when it seemed impossible that we'd be there. And Stephen Colbert, I am America, and so can you. Um, even Jane Austen used satire in Pride and Prejudice. And what about satirical television? Saturday Night Live, that's all it's known for is the satire, and Comedy Central. But there's also 30 Rock, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and MASH. So what about satirical operas? Well, there's Shostakovich's The Nose. Has anybody seen The Nose? Okay, a couple people. Uh, Minotti's The Hero. John Gay's The Beggar's Opera. Mozart's Così fan tutte. And there's an opera written in 2015 called Service Provider that is replete with satire that includes infidelity, very, very bad cell phone etiquette, and a witty waiter. Gilbert and Sullivan's HMS Pinafore, well, in fact, almost everything by GNS, as they are called, is satire. So what happens in the opera world 
when a comedic pair of lovers from different social classes, in a time when the British class system was stately in place, in 
which I hadn't set down yet on paper. Among other things, a, a, a song, a, kind of a, a judge's song, and this references the judge's song in Trial by Jury. For the first lord, tracing his career as office boy in cotton broker's office, clerk, traveler, junior partner, and first lord of Britain's navy. I think a splendid song can be made of this. Of course, there will be no personality in this. The fact that the first lord in the opera is a radical of the most pronounced type will do away with any suspicion that W.H. Smith is intended. I shall be anxious to know what you think of the plot. It seems to me there is plenty of story in it with good musical situations. Despite his thin disguise of the character, the first lord of the admiralty in the opera was clearly meant to satirize William Henry Smith who was Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli's choice as the actual First Lord. W.H. Smith, a conservative, had little to no experience with the Navy. Even Disraeli himself took to calling him Pinafore Smith. <laughs> All of, um, Arthur Sullivan had been taking his holiday in the French and Italian Riviera. He was quite prone to kidney problems, which plagued him throughout his life and caused him great pain. When he felt a reprieve from the pain, he'd rush off to have his holidays, and then he'd later compose quickly under great strain and duress. Many years after it premiered, Sullivan gave the following accounting of composing Pinafore. It is perhaps rather a strange fact that the music to Pinafore, which had thought to be so merry and spontaneous, was written while I was suffering from a cruel illness. I would compose a few bars and then be almost insensible from pain. When the paroxysm was past, I would write a little more until the pain overwhelmed me again. Never was music written under such distressing conditions. However, by spring of 1878, the operetta was in full swing, rehearsals beginning in late April. Revisions were being made by Gilbert well into May, and Sullivan began writing his orchestrations only after rehearsals had begun. The very favorable reviews for HMS Pinafore from opening night predicted a long run and lasting popularity. 141 years later, it's still one of the most popular pieces in the operetta repertoire, and its memorable tunes and witty libretto are still delighting audiences on both sides of the pond. It's considered one of the big three GNS pieces. Of the 14 operettas they wrote, The Pirates of Penzance, the Mikado and HMS Pinafore remain the most produced and the most recognizable. When it premiered, it took a while to find its footing. It was a beastly hot summer in London in 1878 with a heat wave descending upon the city. And the last thing people wanted to do was sit inside a hot and stuffy theater lit by gas lamps. And of course, the theater had no air conditioning. It wasn't until Sullivan took to presenting excerpts from Pinafore at other events, such as a preview at the Opera Center in Binghamton, <laughs> that theatergoers became aware of it and its funny script and its lively score. That, combined with cooling late summer weather, kept the show alive and it soon caught hold and became a very big success. By the next summer in 1879, their producer, Richard Doyley Cart, had a lease on the theater where they were performing and the, the lease was due to run out. The directors of that theater decided to lay sole claim to the production and take over the scenery and props as their property during a performance. They hired some tough guys with moving vans to come into the theater and remove the sets and the props and a fight broke out backstage. 
greatly alarming the audience until George Grossmith, the original Sir Joseph Porter, stopped the show to reassure the theater's patrons that all would be well. Apparently, the thugs were thrown out of the theater by the stagehands, and the performance continued. Dorley Cart moved their pinafore to a different theater, and then another theater, and, performed the Doily, and then he formed the Doily Cart Opera Company. Their original production fared much better than the stolen production, and both ran simultaneously for a while until Doily Cart's production won out, while the stolen one closed. So it was the latest rage in Great Britain, but it also caught on abroad here in the USA. Pirated versions of the show popped up all over the place with hundreds of performances, as there was no copyright secured for the work and international laws were sketchy at best. At one time in 1879, there appeared eight different versions of the show in New York City alone, and none of them owed royalties to the show's creators. So Gilbert and Sullivan set sail to New York City in the fall of 1878 and mounted their official production, which fared much better than the pirated versions, owing, among other things, to Sullivan's lovely orchestrations. It's also reported that Gilbert himself appeared on stage in New York as a sailor in order to keep a very close eye on the various goings on. And speaking of sailors, the opening sailor chorus is a stirring and joyous romp uh, on the HMS Pinafore, and it sets the tone for what's to follow. I've asked our ensemble of sailors to join us to sing that chorus. The story of HMS Pinafore concerns the shipboard love affair between Josephine, the captain's daughter, and Rafe Rackstraw, an able-bodied but lowly sailor. Josephine's hand has been promised in marriage by her father to the Right Honorable Sir Joseph Porter KCB, which stands for Knight Commander of the Bath. Sir Joseph is an older gentleman of the upper class who has been appoint appointed First Lord of the Admiralty. While not an actual admiral, and while he knows nothing about the military, nor ships, nor the ocean, he is responsible for managing the British Navy. Early on in the plot, we are introduced to Mrs. Cripps, affectionately called Little Buttercup by the sailors. She rows her bum boat to the pinafore and boards the ship to sell her wares to the sailors. Buttercup becomes increasingly important in the plot, 
As we learn, she has secrets from the past that will affect the outcome of the story. We have the wonderful Ticia Quartang in our cast portraying Buttercup, and here she is to introduce her character. Many of the ideas for the story of HMS Pinafore came from an earlier verse ballad that Gilbert wrote called Captain Reese. Gilbert's Bab ballads, Bab was Gilbert's pen name, were popular in their time and he often lifted material from his own sources for his operetta libretti. The Captain Reese of the original Bab ballad then became Captain Corcoran in the operetta. Here to sing the ever popular I am the captain of the pinafore is our outstanding captain, Aaron Stepanek. He is introduced by the ship's bosun, played by Eric Toft. My lads, our gallant captain has come on deck. Let us greet him as so brave an officer and so gallant a seaman deserves. My gallant crew, good morning. Sir, good morning. I hope you're all quite well. Quite well, and you, sir, I am in reasonable health, and happy to meet you all once more. Be it 
The original captain was played by Rutland Barrington. He was quite a large man, which led to one of Gilbert's famous quips in a rehearsal of Pinafore. Gilbert asked Barrington to sit pensively on one of the ship's skylights. Barrington lowered himself into position, and the set piece collapsed under his weight. Gilbert remarked, no, that's expensively. <laughs> To reassure our audience, we have no skylights on our set. <laughs> Another interesting thing to note about Doily Cart and the Gilbert and Sullivan light operas, and by the way, a light opera is basically the same thing as an operetta. They're mostly comic operas with dialogue, and they're the precursors to musical theater. It's that they wanted their productions to appeal to a broader audience that was more family-oriented, moving away from the bawdier, risque burlesques that were so popular in that era. Pinafore and later Pirates of Penzance became so popular that they produced versions performed entirely by children. So in this operetta, Gilbert satirizes the class system in England by presenting us with three distinctive classes. The lower class, represented by Rafe and the sailors and Buttercup. The sort of upper middle class, represented by the captain and Josephine and the upper echelon in the form of Sir Joseph Porter and the assortment of sisters, cousins, and aunts who accompany him wherever he goes. Remember the kind of a judge's song that Gilbert wrote about to Sullivan when he was creating the plot to Pinafore? Well, that song became When I Was a Lad, sung by Sir Joseph Porter. It's another introductory song and shows his rise to the top of the tree, as he puts it, in it, he's backed up by a chorus of sailors and a chorus of female relatives, sort of his fan club. We welcome a Tri-Cities opera favorite, Jake Stamatis, to regale us with this popular Gilbert and Sullivan song. Now he is a ruler of the Queen's 
Mr. Gilbert directed his own productions and had a strong hand in choosing a cast that could not only sing but could act in a more naturalistic manner than was common in the melodramas of the era. A reviewer of their earlier work, The Sorcerer, wrote, We secretly marveled at the naturalness and ease with which the Gilbertian quips and absurdities were said and done. For until then, no living soul had seen upon the stage such weird, eccentric, yet intensely human beings. They conjured into existence a hitherto unknown comic world of sheer delight. The struggle between the classes is clearly shown in a duet between Josephine and Rafe after he professes his love for her. In typical GNS style, they sing one thing to each other in an allegro, fast-paced, fiery section but reveal their true feelings as an aside in a more mournful lento section. We'll hear our awesome Josephine and Rafe, Gina Moscato and Kevin Bryant in a scene from act one and then singing refrain audacious tar. It is useless. Sir Joseph's attentions nauseate me. I know that he is truly a great and good man for he told me so himself. But to me, he seems tedious, fretful, and dictatorial. Yet his must be a mind of no common order, or he would not dare to teach my dear father to dance a hornpipe on the cabin table. Reef Rackstraw. Aye, lady, no other than Paul Rackstraw. How oh, my heart beats. And why poor, Rafe? I am poor in the essence of happiness, lady, rich only in never-ending unrest. In me, there meet a combination of antithetical elements which are at eternal war with one another, driven hither by objective emotions, thither by subjective influences, wafted one moment into blazing day by mocking hope, plunged the next into the Sumerian darkness of tangible despair. I am but a living ganglion of irreconcilable antagonisms. I hope I make myself clear, lady. <laughs> Perfectly. His simple eloquence 
remembrance goes to my heart. Oh, if I dared! But I mustn't! The thought is madness. Dismiss these foolish fancies, for they torture you but needlessly. Come, make one effort. I will. One. Josephine! Sir! I, though Joe's arm we were launched at the head of the audacious mortal whose lips, unhallowed by relationship, dared to breathe that precious word, yet would I breathe it once and then perchance be silent evermore. Josephine, in one brief breath I will concentrate the hopes, the doubts, the anxious fears of six weary months. Josephine, I am a British sailor and I love you! Sir, this audacity! Oh, my heart, my beating heart! This unwarrantable presumption on the part of a common sailor! Common, oh, the irony of the word. Oh, sir, you forget the disparity in our ranks. I forget nothing, haughty lady. I love you desperately. My life is in your hands. I lay it at your feet. Give me hope and what I lack in education and polite accomplishments that I will endeavor to acquire. Drive me to despair, and in death alone I shall look for consolation. I am proud and cannot stoop to implore. I have spoken, and I wait your word. You shall not wait long. Your proffered love I haughtily reject. Go, sir, learn to cast your eyes on some village maiden in your own poor rank. They should be lowered before your captain's daughter. <laughs>
So you can see the struggle in the division of classes becomes the most challenging when it comes to the matter of love. Forbidden love is a common theme throughout theatrical history, and indeed it reflects society and its many expectations. In 1936, Edward VIII of England abdicated the throne after less than a year as king in order to marry an American, Wallace Simpson. And more recently, Prince Harry married an American, Meghan Markle, though that seems to have been fraught with a bit less scandal than the affair between Edward and Wallace. The characters in HMS Pinafore struggle with the division in classes, especially when it comes to the matter of love. It is eventually determined that for better or worse, love levels all ranks. Trying to work all of this out in a lively and quite hilarious trio, Josephine, Captain Corcoran, and Sir Joseph sing, Never mind the why and wherefore. The Dorley Cart Opera Company played in London and toured England and abroad until it closed in 1982. 
I had the pleasure of seeing three of their productions in 1981 when I was studying in London. Of course, not knowing at the time that they would close within months. Though I had the Martin Green Treasury of Gilbert and Sullivan piano vocal selections at home and had often played through their music, including Little Buttercup, I'd never seen a GNS production until then. A pretty grand way to see my first Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. I saw these at the Adelphi Theater, but the Savoy Theater is far and away the famous theater for Gilbert and Sullivan and the Doily Cart Company. With profits from the first several productions, Doily Cart built the Savoy Theater, which opened in 1881. It was the first public building in the world entirely lit by electric lights. The public was wary of electricity at that point and felt safer with gas lamps. Doily Cart himself <laughs> stepped onto stage before the first performance of Patience, entirely lit by electricity, to demonstrate the safety of the electric light bulb. <laughs> this theater was also the first to introduce numbered, theater, uh, numbered seating in theaters and the first to have free program booklets for its audience. Back to our story. Will Rafe and Josephine find a way to be together? Will Sir Joseph get his way? Will Buttercup's secret past stir things up and reveal some truths that will forever alter everyone's lives? Come and see our production and find out. <laughs> I leave you with a portion of the act one finale when our two lovers have decided to give it a go, setting up the consequences that ensue in act two. Josephine has decided to escape with Rafe, and the ensemble sings, let's give three cheers for the sailor's bride who casts all thought of rank aside and gives up home and fortune too for the honest love of a sailor true.
Nicholas. Um, come back up here. I have a few questions to ask you. When you're directing a British operetta, what decisions do you have to make about contemporary dialogue or adaptations or accents and dialects? I think the accents are appropriate. Um, of course, we want to keep it British because it's a very sensibly British production. Uh, but we also have to decide uh, who among us has a more proper and, and who's got a cockney and <laughs> where, on the, where on the island are you from? So we've been working on that. Um, yes. Now, you were very modest about your experiences with John Reed, who was a famous singer with the Doily Cart Opera for many, many, many years. You have worked with him in multiple ways. Could you tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from John? Well, you and I both worked with Sir, Sir John Reed, yes. uh, and this is where we met. You were conducting Yeoman of the Guard, and I was singing Colonel Fairfax mm -hmm. in a wonderful production uh, down in Florida. And uh, Sir John Reed was one of the last comic baritones of the Doily Cart Company. He came in to direct, and, uh, and then we worked together in another Yeoman of the Guard production with Cleveland Opera. And then he and I performed together in a, a, a promo, a preview sort of thing, called The British Are Coming, The British Are Coming. <laughs> and we did um, GNS excerpts. Uh, and one of the things he imparted to me, to all of us, as a director, was he said, well, you know, I, d I don't really direct. I just merely pass along the information that I have. So I <laughs> hope that in my directing I can do this. Oh, oh and one other wonderful thing he told, told me was, what is this uh, squirrel? Why, are, why do Americans say, what's a squirrel? He told me the proper way to, to say squirrel is squiddle. <laughs> squiddle, yes, so I've always remembered that. It's very important, I'm sure. Very good. Now, we, we've talked about how this operata is full of satire. Is it satire only in the meaning, or is there satire visually? Is there satire musically? I think uh, there's, uh, in the set and costumes in particular, they keep pretty traditionally to the look of the ship and the costumes. And therein we have uh, a more meaningful satire when somebody like the First Lord of the Am Admiralty comes on looking very pompous and particular, and then suddenly he does a funny song and dance. It makes that satire uh, that much more effective. Great. Now, you both direct and sing. Do you have a preference? I love them both, of course. <laughs> As I get older, I like to pass on that information, uh, but I also like getting up on stage and getting a good laugh. So. Very good. Now, I have one more question. What do you want the audience to take away from this performance? I want them to have a ripping, roaring good time. Forget all your problems for a couple of hours and just enjoy. You're going to have a great, great time. Thank you. Joshua. This is our conductor, Joshua Horsch. HMS Pinafore is the polar opposite of your last opera here at TCO, which was Glory Denied. Do you approach the music or orchestration differently, and do you work differently with the singers? Well, they're certainly very different pieces, but I think they have much more in common than they have differently. Um, both pieces you know, come from a rich operatic tradition, I'd say Glory Denied. You know, it's not Puccini, but it's heavily influenced by Puccini and Strauss, and HMS Pinafore is heavily influenced by Mozart and Del Canto. So it's a lot of similar things and approaches with the singers. Great. Now, 
Does the music to HMS Pinafore help tell the story or is it accompanimental and why? Well, it's certainly very accompanimental, but uh, Arthur Sullivan was a, a brilliant orchestrator and a wonderful composer, so he finds ways to really weave the story into the orchestration as well. Mm -hmm. What should we listen for? Well, it's just a great time, and you can hear lots of beautiful melodies and great texts, so just pay a lot of attention to the words. Now, Nicholas shared with us that when it first premiered, because it was hot, um, it did not immediately take hold, and they took it out with good marketing efforts, and um, that changed everything. So by the time it came to the U.S., the piece was super successful because everybody already knew the hit tunes. How familiar do you think contemporary musicians and audiences today are with Pinafore specifically and Gilbert and Sullivan in general? Well, I think audiences will be very familiar with Gilbert and Sullivan, even if they're not exactly sure where they've heard it from. And certainly the same would be said for HMS Pinafore. Um, it's used frequently in concerts and in pop culture. I, if I remember correctly, there's a Simpsons episode where <laughs> Sideshow Bob serenades Bart Simpson with <coughs> tunes from HMS Pinafore. So if you don't know that, it's, there are similar instances in pop culture, certainly. Great. Now, how do you help singers sing in their own language, except it's in a dialect. How do you work with them that way? Well, English is a hard language to sing in, even if it's your native language. So um, we spend a lot of time in making sure that the language is clear and expressive while still you know, singing a beautiful line. So that's a challenge in, in any opera that's in English. And then having the added challenge of a dialect that's not familiar to most of our cast is a challenge, but Nicholas has been great in helping with that, and John and I have helped a lot as well, as, as best we can. So it's a, it's a big project, but uh, they're doing a great job. And one more question. Do you have a favorite musical part in this operetta? Well, I really love the act one duet between uh, Rafe and Josephine, which you heard tonight, and then there's also a really great trio for that, where uh, three men from the, the cast sing Sir Joseph's ridiculous song, and it's quite fun. Thank you very much. Now, I'd like to bring Jake Stamatis up here, who plays Sir Joseph Porter. <laughs> Jake. Hello. <laughs> When you play a comedic character, how much of the character is Jake? And how much is written into the score? And how do you integrate it with all the directorial and musical guidance? Well, I think I've had plenty of opportunities to play amazing comedic characters here at TCO. And I think something about it is I, well, it's not all me. <laughs> like I was saying, like they're all, they're all their own people, but there are things that I like to bring of myself to a character, and something I love bringing to comedic character roles is a sense of innocence, is a sense of optimism, and a lot of energy. So those are three qualities that I love seeing in comedy that I think just creates like the joy in a piece like this, because I just really want to like share all of that with you guys, and I'd like everyone to feel joyful watching something like this and feeling something like this. But then... But then, <laughs> after getting all caught up in that, then I have the guidance of some pretty amazing staff and artistic fellows behind me here to kind of keep me on track and make sure that this becomes a person, you know? Now, what happens if you disagree with a directorial or musical choice? <laughs> I'm just gonna say squiddle. No, I'm just kidding. I'm like, <laughs> No, I think, um, 
You know, it's the funny thing about people is I think everyone's interpretation of people and everything that people see in others is valid. So I think that um, it's exciting to get sort of a conflicting thought or something that's contrary to what I'm working with because that brings another dimension because I'm just bringing one perspective, but this we're creating a person, so why not create it from as many perspectives as possible to make something most true? So I'm into it. Thank you, Jake. Thank you. Gina. Yes. <laughs> Gina Moscato plays Josephine. Gina, what is Josephine's thought process about which man to choose for a husband, the rich one or the poor one? Well, um, Josephine doesn't really get a say in which one she chooses. Um, her father has set up this marriage to Sir Joseph and she's not happy about it. Um, and she sees Rafe on the ship and really likes him. Um, so she has these tactics that she tries to get her father to change his mind and he doesn't listen. So she takes matters into her own hands. But um, there's a whole aria in act two where I kind of weigh the options and decide. And then after that, my decision kind of falls right into my lap. So, yeah. Excellent, thank you. Tizia, our little buttercup. Tizia, you have a personal history with buttercup. Can you tell us what this is? I sure can. So um, when I was nine years old, my very first recital ever in my life was at Carnegie Hall, which is ridiculous, I know. But, <laughs> right? Crazy. And I sang Buttercup's aria that I sang tonight. And so it's a really full circle moment getting to do the entire role. I'm really, really excited. And my family's coming, so it's even better. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you, Tizia. Kevin. You play Rafe Rackstraw, and if you don't know what Rafe means, in America we call it Ralph. <laughs> There's a lot of dialogue in HMS Pinafore, as we heard. How do you develop a character when there's both music and dialogue? Uh, well, I, uh, I, there is a lot of dialogue, you're absolutely right. I do actually start with the dialogue, though. The text gives me the idea of how Rafe reacts externally to the situations that he finds himself in. And once I have a grip on how he would react on the outside, then I take a look at the music, which gives me an idea of how he feels on the inside, which is the other side of that coin. Um, following that, I actually get to take myself and put myself into the character, which is where the physicalities would come from. I can only move certain ways. Uh, and uh, using that to round out the character, I'm able to make a full, whole person. Thank you. Aaron. Aaron Stepanek plays Captain Corcoran. Aaron. Your first opera this season was in Italian, then colloquial American English, and now British English. How do you approach the really three different languages? Great question. Um, to, to reiterate what Josh said about singing in my own language, it is, it's very difficult um, singing Three Decembers. Uh, there, there was a lot of nuance there. There's also nuance here in, in British English. Um, certainly we add the um, dialect in there. Um, but really, it, it doesn't matter what language we're singing in, whether it's Italian, German, French, Russian, Hebrew, whatever language it, you want it to be, um, everything goes back to the text and everything gets internalized from the text. And um, so we, we translate the music and uh, find what it, what it means to us 
Um, even if it's not, you know, when we're doing our word-for-word -word translation, uh, there are so many words uh, in English that could mean something in Italian. And so finding that word that really helps internalize it for us uh, as a singer, that's, that's the easiest way to do it. Terrific. Thank you, Aaron. <laughs> Opera is a social event, and it's fun to share with your family and friends. We have two more opportunities this season for that to happen. Tickets are on sale for HMS Pinafore. Our performance is on Sunday, April 28, at 3 o'clock at the Forum Theatre. And we end our season with the ever-popular Bravo Broadway on Friday, May 10, at 7.30 at the Tri-Cities Opera Centre. This high-spirited review with the unique show tune shuffle that determines the final set and the ever-popular Name That Tune will be your last opportunity to hear our current group of resident artists, as well as many of the singers from Binghamton University. You don't want to miss that. If you need to purchase tickets or wish to get extra tickets so that you can go with your friends and family, please call our box office at 772-0400 or go to our website, www.tricitiesopera.com. Next season titles include Tosca, with returning resident artist Jill Gardner in the title role. Murray Begins is a world premiere production that introduces contemporary technology for the very first time into an opera as the audience helps Marie make choices for her life in this jazz-influenced musical delight. You even get to pull out your cell phones. The season closes with Little Night Music, Stephen Sondheim's uh, Tony Award-winning musical, or opera. It features all of our resident artists, returning resident artist Emily Geller in the iconic role of Desiree, who sings Sint in the Clowns, and local actress Heidi Weeks in her TCO and role debut as Madame Armfelt. Continuing subscribers may purchase their tickets beginning on May 10th at Bravo Broadway. New subscribers can join the TCO subscriber family beginning on June 1st. And single tickets go on sale for online purchase on July 1st and in the TCO box office on July 8th. We are so pleased to thank our three production sponsors for HMS Pinafore, Jeff's Painting and Remodeling, Tioga State Bank, and Warren Real Estate. Two sponsorships for the opera previews all season include Johnson City Liquor and Wine and La Veggio Rosteria. We are super grateful to the M&T Bank for their season-long sponsorship of the M&T Maestro. And a very, very special thank you and shout out to WSKG, our media sponsor, for continuing to broadcast our opera preview so that the entire listening community can experience and learn about HMS Pinafore. I'd also like to thank John Cockerell, our beautiful musical associate for his uh, beautiful playing. Our tremendously talented solo artists and chorus, the entire TCO staff, board, and enthusiastic group of volunteers. Thank you for all you have done to make the 1819 season successful. We welcome any newcomers who are joining our preview for the first time. We also thank all of our audience who regularly attend the free preview or listen to the broadcast. I hope to see each of you on Sunday, April 28 at the forum. Come see this giddy and delightful production. Come hear the beautiful voices. Come see the spectacular set. Come prepared to fall in love with opera all over again or for the first time. Mm -hmm.